welcome to a new episode of House of Decline. And uh, on this episode, we have a man I have followed uh, for a while on Twitter, got to know him through Twitter, got to know him through his brilliant cartoon work. You know him from the New Yorker uh, and other publications. It's uh, at hack cartoonist Jason Novak. How you doing today, Jason? Good. Good is good. You're, it's a beautiful day <laughs> in California where you are. It is. Perfect uh, weather. You're out walking on the street. Nothing's on fire yet. Uh, no, that happens tonight. <laughs> is that so a that big good? Uh, yeah. Street lighting. <laughs> is, is that a big problem in the area that you're in? Is like, uh, are wildfires constantly happening? Wildfire. Well, you know, I, there was a few. There were a few years, obviously, where it was really, really bad, and uh, we had, you know, in the middle of the pandemic, we had some. Um, but it seems like uh, a lot of that has kind of been burned off now. The, the fires aren't happening as much. I'm not an expert on this stuff, so it could just be that we have better prevention systems in place now. But uh, there's. All this sense I get the the stuff all the kindling that was available has finally been burned away. Um, and, <laughs> so and you we just got have... really good wet winter. But, and, and you can you can kind of measure it, you know we were in a drought situation for a long time and so all the uh, public fountains have been switched off and I noticed they're back on again. So it's if that's a measure of anything, you know, <laughs> with the public fountains are on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know yeah yeah you, you can't be too bad if there's a fountain around the corner they, what if you're just wasting water because as everyone is designed to like uh, see the fountains and see oh we're doing well now but really you're just yeah. using the last little bit of it in order to marshal some public courage together before you know, the real water of, wars start right i immediately thought of versailles right the <laughs> king has been killed they turn the fountains off it's the first thing that happens Ah, I see. You know, you know that something has changed when the fountains turn off. Yeah, I have always questioned the public utility of fountains. You know, I don't, I don't get what's so entertaining about them. Maybe when I was a child, I liked them. I, I was dazzled by the dancing water. But um, excuse me. <laughs> <clears throat> but Sounded as like an you were adult, drowning. yeah, 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 I'm drowning in my own phlegm. Uh, if they made a phlegm fountain, that would be amazing. I would be impressed by that fountain. But you know what? What's the last fountain you went to that you were really like, "Wow, this is a this is a crazy good fountain." Well, uh, th th my answer is going to probably be a little utilitarian uh, because there's a fountain. There's a, there's a place I lived, I grew up in a place called Concord, which is like a very you know hot concrete suburban sort of place. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but the town. One town over from us was a place called Walnut Creek, which was uh, really upscale. And they had a, a really fancy shopping center. Mm -hmm. And in the middle of this shopping center was uh, a fountain that I noticed as a kid was always absolutely filled with quarters. Mm. Wow, not even with, pennies. With coins or whatever. Not pennies, quarters, half dollars. Jesus you know, Christ, so. they're rich people wishes. Yes, they were. So I, when I was a teenager, yeah. a friend of mine and I went down there and started cleaning the fountain out oh yeah as you would you know it's not worth it for pennies but you know you four quarters you know that's a dollar you go get a candy bar at the rich people uh, mall I, I remember all all around the edge of the fountain it was like a big circular you know concrete bowl mm -hmm. and i had all of these coins stacked all around the edge of the fountain it was like 
tens, if not hundreds of dollars. And right as we were starting to like scoop the loot into whatever containers we had, mm -hmm. uh, the security guard rolled up in his golf cart and, uh, chased us out of there but, <laughs> in his uh, golf cart you know it's a rich people mall because the security guards have golf carts as well yeah yeah this was before segways yeah before paul blart really changed the mall security guard game you know <laughs> before blart you know nobody knew that you could use these vehicles but uh yeah uh, not was, anymore that was definitely the tantalizing thing to me about fountains as a kid was the fact that people were throwing money into them yeah what i used to i used to throw pennies where does that fucking come from what a weird human ritual yeah pennies are okay but the, yeah the, the quarters it, it like hurt Especially, yeah you are literally I, you know, I, wasting a, a fairly substantial amount of money <laughs> on nothing yeah, when i was you know it, it, yeah right exactly um you know a phone call back then was a quarter uh the bus was 50 cents yeah a quarter has made it, a yeah, difference in your life. Yeah, it, it definitely did. I grew up, uh, you know, again, I, the Concord was kind of like the, you know, the, the, um, the poor relation of Walnut Creek. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so, I mean, there were definitely mornings where, uh, my mom and I were like turning the cushions of the couch out so that we could try and find bus change. Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah, that was I, probably why the, the money going into the fountain was, uh, so uh monumental in my childhood <laughs> oh yeah well yeah i i remember doing that i remember searching couch cushions for bus change as well but yeah i had no uh, the only fountains i had access to were the penny fountains bullshit fountains you know i'm not i'm not gonna troll around at the bottom of those fountains looking for that shit were those canadian pennies they were Can so e worth even, even less yep. 0. <laughs> 0. 0.73 percent of an american penny bullshit <laughs> <laughs> um i i actually wanted i i love your cartoon style and uh it's very loose and sort of um it has like a, a, a thurberish quality i would i yeah would say i've heard that it. before yeah um, uh, but the, it's more well, thurberish was not like he was not like uh you have a more technical skill than thurber which uh comes out in your composition and the way that you like draw bodies as well yeah i wasn't really into art as a kid uh and i didn't you know i, I the, my training but so my training is this when i was 25 mm -hmm. i had a girlfriend at the time who was uh, she was leaving town and uh, <laughs> she said I, I i wasn't doing anything with my life so i wanted to go along she said i'm only gonna let you follow me if you like do something with yourself like go to school so I uh, enrolled in an art school because uh, I, it was the only thing that I thought I could get into. Okay. Uh, yeah. And <laughs> like every other place wanted like academic records and this place just wanted a portfolio, but I'd never drawn anything in my life. So I, uh, <laughs> I, I just grabbed a, um, uh, I, I found, I, I just started looking at like art books on the shelf of like a bookstore and, uh, one of the things that popped out with at me was uh, the um, the prints of Edvard Munch. Edvard Munch, so the, I, the the Norwegian, Swedish, Norwegian. Yeah, Norwegian, Norwegian. He's best. He's mostly known as a Norwegian painter, but uh, you know, the Scream is his most famous work. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, he also did these prints, woodcuts, and etchings, and things like that. And they, but they have the same kind of 
you know, atmospheric, dark, uh, angsty quality that would have spoken to a 25 year old. Mm-hmm. And, and so I kind of just cribbed his style, uh, drew some random things and then sent them to this art school and they let me in. Hell yeah. I, prob- I probably could have done anything and they would have let me in. I could have sent them <laughs> blank pages and they would have let me in. Well, you um, know, but, <laughs> but, uh, so yeah. And then, and then suddenly I was uh, taking like what they call foundation art, like life drawing and sculpture and learning about form and volume and all that stuff. Uh, and I, but, um, this was all, uh, uh, on uh, a loan. Yeah. Uh, after, after one semester, I, I saw the statement and immediately dropped out. <laughs> <laughs> but you had learned the foundations by then. You know? I'd already, yeah, I already had yeah. what I needed. And actually, I got a really, really, um, in retrospect, wonderful piece of advice from one of the drawing instructors there who said, look, if this is really what you want to do with your life, all that matters is the portfolio. Mm-hmm. The, the BFA isn't going to mean anything. Uh, and I took that to heart. So I figured it's okay if I drop out now because I'm still, you know, this, it, it wasn't, it hadn't it like turned into a, a gigantic um, uh, debt that was going to follow me for the rest of my life at that point. So, um, yeah, so but I, but having been 20, I was 25, I'd never done anything before. Mm-hmm. Suddenly I had this crash course and uh, yeah, I had to find my own way. So well, that's very interesting. There was never any inkling of like artistic ability before that, or like you you weren't. Did you like look at cartoons when you were a kid, or you had anything like that? Well, when I was uh, really little, like maybe you know five or six. Yeah, I think I I drew in class a couple times and got in trouble, and <laughs> I kind of learned that this isn't something you're supposed to do. So I gave yeah. it up. Um. But yeah, I probably can. I mean, you know, Warner Brothers cartoons, The Simpsons, or whatever—just the stuff that is almost unavoidable. You're you're definitely going to encounter this stuff. Um, but I don't know if I was ever analyzing it for form. Now, when I look at art, it's impossible not to immediately start dissecting it. Oh yeah. Um, it's which is funny because I. But at least you know, I feel like I had this, all you know, kind of a half a lifetime of just encountering art as something that I didn't really understand, and uh, so it was in some ways more visceral. Yeah. I like was able to develop an emotional relationship with images that, that didn't get bogged down by technical questions or, you know, now, now I'm plagued. I, I, I spend every yeah. day worrying that I'm using the wrong pen. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that, I mean, that's the sort of like the revelation of uh, somebody like Matisse or like eventually, or the punks eventually is that, a practiced amateurishness in art is is uh, just as good, if not more compelling than expertise. Uh, yeah. But eventually, if you start doing practiced amateurishness enough, you start, you know, getting bored with it. So you want to become more technically uh, ex- expert or something like that. Yeah, I, I, yeah. There's there's a little bit of that for sure. Um, although, so the the artists I most admire. Um, the, it, it's true that sometimes like in, later in their careers, they become more involved with like the technical aspect of their work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't, it, I just don't find it as moving. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if this is, this wasn't by design, but I think if, if, if there's an amateurish quality to my stuff still, it's, it's the result of 
the work I do, like the extra, the, the not artistic work I do, the fact mm. that most of what I do is very physical and exhausting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, in a way, I, like I'm, I'm constantly undermining whatever fine motor skills I might be developing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, with the physical work. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that's a happy accident or what, but unfortunately, uh, the the thing I'm grappling with right now is not so much um, a matter of style or form, but just a a sense that um, I've kind of said everything uh, I've had to say or have to say. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't I don't think it's it, it's funny how this works though because you 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 think you're saying something, um, and then you might go back and look at it later and you realize that you you didn't really successfully communicate what it was that was on your mind. Yeah. So I, I feel like I've spilled a ton of ink trying to say something and I haven't really said it. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of like, I, 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 there's sort of like an iterative quality to it where I was like, uh, it's like David Lynch's movies. You see in the progression of David Lynch's movies, a lot of his movies are like, the same thing. He keeps iterating on the same idea, like Blue Velvet and Mulholland Drive and, you know, the Twin Peaks, you know, they all have these uh, uh, themes of like innocence uh, being met with this horrible underbelly of humanity. And it, it really is the same idea over and over again, but subtly different in, in each way. And I think that's <laughs> sort of like one of the best ways to approach it is because, of course, you're going to repeat yourself. Of course, there's like a limited amount of things in your head that you can say or that are unique to your sensibility. But I think, you know, the effort of trying to express that better is sort of a yeah. process. Yeah. Yeah, uh, maybe there's also just a certain amount of built-in change. You know, you're you're changing physically. Your circumstances are changing. Your environment is changing, and so yeah, it, it's it's all of that is going to be reflected in one way or another. Uh, so it's inevitable. Yeah, I, I mean, the the salute the short version of the sh- the short version of the solution I'm looking for is really to just keep doing it. Uh, uh, yeah, whatever dissatisfaction or frustration I'm feeling will work itself out as long as I keep moving forward, but. <laughs> uh, there, but at the same time, there is this, uh, I'm not sure what it is exactly, but, uh, yeah, there's a, a feeling right now that, uh, maybe there's a new way to say what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. To need to change to that sense of discomfort is necessary in change though. I am, I am reminded of an old adage by a rabbi who said, you know, consider the lobster, the lobster molts. And during this molting, he is very uncomfortable, but that is what is necessary in order for you to grow and change and to develop a new shell. And eventually that one will molt as well. But no, I'm very much with you because like, I'm like, um, like I did like a thousand penis comics in one year and now the penis (laughs) comics well has run dry. Like, I'm like, how can I make this? What else can a penis be? I don't know anymore. I'm reaching for this stuff now, which is why like the volume of, of dick jokes in my comics has gone down by a considerable amount. Now I'm making like jokes about pop culture and like relationships and stuff because like, um, yeah, there there is like a certain amount of um, just like na- naturally you're going to repeat yourself over the course of a, a certain time in your artistic life and getting bored with that repetition is inevitable. So you need to find some way to change it up. You know, I've never drawn any dicks. 
Maybe. Maybe the maybe I need to take your torch. <laughs> yeah, maybe the dick torch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, pass you know, it on. Almost everything I draw, it's like framed around the upper. You know, it's like from the head down to maybe the nipples. Yeah. And uh, so I just need to change the camera frame. Yeah. Now it's just gonna just gonna be abdomens, torsos. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No heads. Uh, just uh, <laughs> talking just abdomens. Space. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I mean, there is something to that because like so much of drawings or cartoons, especially like comics where there's usually a speech bubble or text involved, it is very face or head centric. You know, there's a lot of attention. Uh, I, I forget the guy who wrote the who made the triplets of Belleville, the animated movie. Oh, yeah. I don't know his name either, but it's probably French. Yeah, he's, he's definitely French. Uh, but um, he had a the reason why he wanted no dialogue in that movie was because he was like he was like um, animations usually very obsessed about the mouth. And it's like a lot of mouth movements to the like detriment of having full bodied figures, you know, sort of interact and communicate through visual language in that way, which is why right. that movie has no dialogue. Also, you know, having no dialogue helps it translate better to other markets as well yeah that's a mis well i don't know if i should say it was a mistake but uh, the last book i did uh the, the 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 reviews or criticism that i saw about it uh said that it was strongest when i eliminated text altogether mm. and i was just when, when i was focusing on pantomime so there were the full the panels with full body expression uh where there's a lot of action yeah. and no no need to explain it uh, I think that's that's a big struggle in cartooning, though, because sometimes, you know, you want to go with that film idea of show, don't tell. But the thing about it is the thing that's unique about comics and cartoons is it's text and pictures. So if right. there isn't some text element, you know, you are only really using half the medium or half what it's good for. It, I agree. Yeah, yeah. There, there's I've there, I've long toyed with the idea of doing something that's utterly wordless and it. It just. I I always end up thinking like ah, there's no way this is really going to do what I wanted to even if it's uh I don't know um you know I could have like the most insane gymnastics going on but that doesn't really if there are some ideas that that can't be performed in interpretive dance you know yeah <laughs> yeah yeah uh well, but, also because, yeah, your stuff is very grounded in reality and experience. And like you, you focus a lot on biography, too. I noticed that you're you're very interested in the lives of others or how they you had like that whole interview series where you're interviewing different uh, cartoonists and, you know, finding out about. Uh, uh, there's what, what is like because uh, I don't have any interest in other people. I don't want to know about the lives <laughs> of people like what what drives you to understand uh, the history of individuals in this way? Uh, I don't know. Um, I was I, my, the first thought I had when you were mentioning this is that uh, I, it feels in a way like I've whittled down to to what is essential for me uh, with these interviews, these interview comics, because uh, they're practically the only thing I can draw anymore. <laughs> yeah, I've kind of like for whatever reason, I run out of juice on anything else I was doing, um, but I can still get those out, and it's actually it's still become kind of a struggle, but. Uh, because I have a regular gig now with a venue, mm -hmm. uh, there's that extra little kick in the pants that I need every month to get more material out. But that, yeah, that I I don't know. There, it, it's 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 somehow trying to make 
I just don't have the words for it. I, I, I think it's, you know, I, I think it's worth exploring because before we started recording, you were talking about all the World War One guys. You were sort of obsessed with the World War One guys and oh, right. went back in like 2011 when they were all dying and like living history was being like living memory was being erased before your eyes. And so you you were actually able to name the specific name of the last WW1 vet that died, which That's I was right. impressed by. What was it? Lewis <laughs> Allington, you said? Oh, um, uh, Henry Allingham. Henry Allingham, yeah. Yeah. Born in um, 1896, died 1911, or died in 2011. <laughs> if, Yeah. <laughs> Um, anyway, uh, maybe, uh, I, I've always enjoyed interviews, um, mm -hmm. and not as not conducting them, but reading them. Mm -hmm. They've always, they've always, it's, it's something that feels very natural. You know, the, when you, when you speak a sentence, it has a certain flow that you don't necessarily get with writing, mm -hmm. uh, strictly speaking. Um, is it, but this, maybe, uh, yeah, yeah, no, you can continue, continue. Also, I, my, my relationship with creating stuff is also very intuitive. I don't, I'm not a big planner. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times an idea grows out of something that, that was an accident. Um, and, and so there's a lot of unpredictability in when you're having a discussion with someone, uh, so that it, it kind of, it's an organic structure that it, that's, that's very much reactive. Yeah, and so yeah. it's very comfortable for me because I, I'm working with something that someone has handed me. I'm reacting to it instead of having to just generate out it ideas out of nothing. Um, but I know that's that's kind of selling short other ways of creating though, because everyone is obviously reacting to something that's happening around them. But uh, maybe maybe some of it is just. Uh, it gets gets down to motivation, and you know, <laughs> yeah, trying to trying to reach out and connect with other people. Um, yeah. And so, and, and there's, you know, they, they, there's this old trope that every writer is writing for a particular person because mm -hmm. you can't write to the public. The writing to the public doesn't really, it's not cohesive. Yeah. And so even if you don't know who that one person is and you're deep in your psyche, somewhere is that, that audience member of one mm -hmm. that you're addressing. And, uh, it's easier if I know exactly who it is I'm talking to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I get that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Th th but that sort of like, um, cause you know, art or what makes art good is specificity. You know, there's something, unique there is a quality to this which cannot be easily replicated by somebody else or you know is uh distinctive or idiosyncratic to whoever is producing it and you know that sort of interview format you're given an automatic uh window into idiosyncrasy because if you just ask anybody three questions you know, you'll find, wow, there's a whole world in you. There's a whole fucking universe in you. And, you know, some crazy shit happened to you that I don't even know about before. But now you're telling it to me. Um, yeah, I like I like that. Yeah. The certain lack of control. It's important, I think. Yeah. Is it also uh, that, you know, like people are repositories of living history as well, which which makes it interesting? Yep. Yeah, that's you know, another longtime obsession of mine is uh, you know, field recordings of music. Yeah. yeah. You know, Alan Lomax, stuff like that. Um, yeah. Or going back further, like uh, the composer Bella Bartok. Love Bartok, uh, was a, yeah. He was a folklorist going into the countryside with his little hand-cranked uh, cylinder recorder. 
yeah, yeah. to get down all those gypsy tunes. And uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. There's yeah, that there, there's this struggle to try and uh, preserve something before it's completely wiped. Yeah, the the famous adage from the video game, "Everything not saved will be lost." Uh, which translated, but I, I, it's something that I talk about a lot on this show because um, uh, we've been talking about media preservation a lot because now we're seeing, we were promised in the digital age that media will be on here forever. You know, it, once it's on the internet, it's completely sealed and locked in time and there's nothing you can do to get rid of it. But now we see all these dead links like all yeah. of this digital oh. media translating everything to digital media instead of physical media means that m way more stuff is being lost to time now because there is no physical version of it. Yeah. As a longtime freelancer, uh, we used to rack up a lot of bylines and now, yeah, I go back and I just think it's, it's probably more than half, but it's just, it's been scraped. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they, they, there might be, a box of originals somewhere, but they are <laughs> deep, deep, deep under a heap of something else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel uh, it's, it's, it's gotta be a claw. I need to, I need to write a will because I don't want my kids to feel any guilt around throwing all of that stuff away. <laughs> <laughs> you can throw the original. I'm sure that nah, they, they want to keep them. I'm sure. <laughs> um, uh... I want to, cause so you've, you've uh, written comics for the New Yorker. Which I find, you know, I find that very interesting because like that you weren't a, like a kid who was reading New York because I was like one of those stupid, weird kids that was reading New Yorker comics when I was like 12 years old and like thinking, aha, I am the I am the pinnacle of sophistication by reading these cartoons. <laughs> I don't understand most of them. They're they're about like <laughs> lots of people are on therapist couches, but this is this is what comedy is, apparently. So uh, I'm really enjoying them. I guess also like. My intro to them was a guy who's sort of atypical for the New Yorker, but who is in it. Uh, Gan Wilson is one of my oh, yeah. biggest influences. I loved yeah. his stuff. And it's very easy for a kid to get to because, you know, kids like gross or like weird stuff. And, you know, oh, yeah, for I sure. was very much into the horror aspect of his comics when I was when I was a kid. And that got me into the broader uh, New Yorker universe. How, how did you, did you like make that discovery like after you went to art school or like, uh, how did you well, get into like New Yorker stuff? Everything is messed up because I, uh, yeah, I didn't, that the New Yorker wasn't something I was really super conscious of as a kid, but my, my, my dream when I was younger was to be a writer. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the New Yorker just was in my head as this, as a goalpost. Um, and so, you know, when, <laughs> when I started drawing and thinking about, well, if this is the thing I'm going to be doing creatively, where should I take it? Uh, I just took it to all the places that had already been in my head with writing. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but now suddenly, you know, in a way, uh, what, what makes it easier as a cartoonist than a writer is that, uh, you get immediate reactions. Like people can look at your stuff and process it immediately. Mm -hmm. Um, and in the context of showing it to an editor, uh, that that's a, that's much more satisfying because the 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 struggle that I saw the writers going through is mm -hmm. that they would you know uh, they would sweat and bleed over three thousand one ten thousand words or whatever mm -hmm. and then send them off to play send these like short stories off to places and it would take months and months before they even got any kind of reply and it just seemed like this this 
that's not sustainable. That's insane that you would be doing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the anticipation, uh, just living with that bated breath for months at a time is like would be bad for my heart. Oh, awful. So uh yeah, but with cartoons, I mean, even at the New Yorker, let's you know, they have that weekly vetting session where people just sit in the office and get have their work eviscerated, but at least they're you know, they're getting immediate replies. Mm-hmm. So the turnover was faster and I'm not patient. Yeah, so yeah, that yeah, really spoke to me. But uh but yeah, so the you know, the New Yorker, the Atlantic, Harper's, all these those were very deliberate goalposts. Mm-hmm. Um and it was just a matter of figuring out who had the decision making power at these places, like going through the masthead and yeah. trying to harass people, but not too much. Remnick. Yeah, showing up in David Remnick's toilet. It's like, hey, yeah. would you like my cartoons? <laughs> Going a crashing Francois Mouly's kids bar mitzvah or whatever. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I, I, I've reached a point now where um, I think a lot, of, a lot of that motivation of, of trying to get those big names, you know, obviously it was there's ego and that's also a sense of inadequacy because I never did actually go to college except for a semester of art school. And so I kind of felt like a, a fuck up. And, and and so it was a way of like asserting some kind of validate or find, finding some kind of validation or asserting my competency. Um, uh, but I, I guess I've, I'm at, I'm at a point now where I, I don't, I don't feel that fire anymore. Yeah. Well, you don't, uh, you it, don't have, you have less to prove now that you've actually been established. That's probably a big part of it. Yeah. Um, but I've also, I, I don't, my, my faith in those things has also, um, diminished quite a bit. <laughs> Your faith in like big institutional publications. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Cause every, it seem, does seem like in, in some sense, everything has been reordered. Mm-hmm. The, the, I, the, when I started doing this stuff, it was like late two thousands and actually, weirdly corresponded with uh, the uh, uh, the big crash in 2008. Okay, yeah. It was like, it was like maybe a, 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 a maybe the worst time and you could possibly pick to try and start making a career out of something like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know exactly what you mean because I was going to, at that time I was in college for music. So <laughs> I, know what you, I know what you mean, yeah. So, yeah, but, uh, so my experience was, um, going to all of these places as the cracks were appearing and, uh, yeah, I guess I, I got to there. So yeah, there was this point where these two different feelings met. One was that I no longer had anything to prove, but secondly, that I'd also actually been disillusioned mm-hmm. or that whatever, whatever I thought these legacy places represented no longer had the same meaning or value to me. So not now, I don't know. This, you know, I posted recently that uh, I'd submitted to something to the New Yorker five years ago and mm-hmm. they just accepted it. <laughs> uh, That's so funny. It, yeah. You were worried about being a writer and having delayed, <laughs> delayed acceptance times or delayed criticism times, but you know, it still happens. I don't know. I, I I can't account for it either because that's actually that five years ago is about the time that I decided I wasn't going to try anymore. <laughs> so it's uh, like, it feels dis- it feels a little dysfunctional. Like they're like they were waiting for me to do something else, and because I didn't do it, they were like just going to like 
just like dig their heels in and like somehow demonstrate that I needed to come crawling back to them. And uh, it never happened. <laughs> so they're like, oh, wait, wait, wait. I don't know. Uh, yeah, well, you gotta, yeah, the, what, what about these publications seem dysfunctional now? Is it that there's just, it, it like magazines don't really exist anymore and they're like living ghosts in this world of digital media? Oh, I guess it's, it's probably more like I seeing closely enough the real pi uh, power dynamics behind it mm. that it's not, you know, there's all this you know, grumbling about meritocracy and, uh, you know, that th th there was never a meritocracy at these places. There, it was always, I mean, obviously there's a certain amount of skill and ability you have to have, but, uh, the, the selection process, uh, is so nepotistic and, mm -hmm. and, you know, the, the, there's, there's so much, uh, I, I don't want to use this word wrong, but incorrectly, but you know, there's politics. I'm not talking yeah. about like ideological politics, but just the office politics of these places. Yeah. Um, it, it, so it just, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, yeah, you get, I, it's probably just familiarity breeds contempt, but yeah. Well, I also think there's certain, like when you're an artist too, um, especially when you're like, you're naturally more idealistic when you're younger. Um, I think you have this idea that other artists, you know, because they have these high minded faculties, because they have, you know, the, the maybe the same motivations as you to like express something and get down to the core of the human soul. You know, you, you have this imagination, uh, this imagined image of them as being more egalitarian or being more fair or having like a, a greater sense of equity or being secret commies or something like that. But no, nobody's <laughs> nobody's secret commie. You know, they're they're still at this capitalist institution and they're still you know plagued by all the uh pitfalls of i mean i guess nepotism is not unique to capitalism but uh no of course yeah. not i mean and you know it I, I it's it's not it's not even upset if you're talking about someone's zine where it's them and their three friends i'm yeah. not gonna go oh nepotism <laughs> How come I'm not yeah. your zine? but uh you know i i guess you know it is yeah part of it is that this is a giant bullseye right new york yeah. is a giant bullseye and so you're gonna have every conniving um, you know, unscrupulous, you know, ambitious uh, climber uh, trying to break into it. Mm -hmm. and so, yeah, it's, I think maybe almost by definition, it's just going to be kind of, I don't know, vicious. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, the, well, we, we come back to capitalism because it's that, it's that sense of competition. You know, there's there's, you know, whether you want it or not, there you're always competing against these people for a limited amount of space in these big publications. Right. Um, and that sort of takes the wind out of your sails a little because it's like, shouldn't there be a world where we're all supporting each other or there's sort of like a more variety of people that you publish, uh, you know, but. I guess, you know, yeah. once you once you make friends with the editor and you're good friends with the editor, that's it. You know, you're in and you can get right. whatever you want in there. And they have this sort of um, there's only enough money to go around to support like a few cartoonists doing their venture uh, exclusively. So they, they figure they might as well do that instead of support hundreds of cartoonists in a piecemeal sort of manner. Right. Yeah. And I, some of it I realized is probably just a. Uh, an inability to to really accept or adapt to 
what's really in front of me, you know, I, I, because I, there's this other idea I had in my head for a long time. There was once upon a time, every city had, you know, two or three newspapers mm -hmm. and, and those, those newspapers were like, had whole staffs of cartoonists. Yeah. And, and, and they all had different jobs at the paper, but they all involved like some form of illustration throughout the pages. Yeah. And so there'd be someone whose job was just to like, you know, take the financial columns and, and put little filigrees in there or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it just, uh, that, you know, in a weird way, that was kind of deep down the kind of thing I wanted for myself was to just oh, be yeah. a full-time cartoonist interacting with the public in some way, not necessarily colossal, but just having a relationship. Well, did you see uh, Zodiac? Yes. Yeah, yeah Jake Gyllenhaal was... is a cartoonist in that who is also That's trying right. to solve the Zodiac. Murder. But yeah, but I want his job. That would be my dream job. Are you kidding me? Being like an I editorial tried. guy at, at a newspaper, that, that would be incredible. I tried really hard to get in touch with Robert Graysmith, <laughs> the, the actual cartoonist. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wanted to interview him. Mm -hmm. uh, it didn't work out. Ah, uh, well. The, well, so the other guy that... Um, I actually I, I established contact with him, but uh, then he bailed. Uh, a cartoonist named Dan O'Neill. Mm. He, he had a he had a comic strip in the Chronicle uh, during the Zodiac years called Odd Bodkins. <laughs> I think I know Odd Bodkins actually. It's it, it's actually pretty cool for yeah. what it, what it is and 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 what he did. And at the time he was doing it, he's considered one of the like kind of proto underground cartoonists. Mm -hmm. But he was the one with like a, a real job because he was actually at the Chronicle while all mm -hmm. of his you know cohort were doing underground press or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, he's I think he's in his eighties now and he lives in the hills and uh, yeah I, I I I managed to get one email reply from him uh, and then he ghosted me and wow. it might not might not have even been on purpose. So, yeah, he probably isn't a big email guy. <laughs> I don't no. think anyone. I don't think R. Crumb is a big email guy. I don't think probably Gilbert not. Shelton is a big email guy. But <laughs> yeah, um, but I yeah, I, I really wanted to get in touch with that world at one point, um, uh, especially you know my own my family background. Uh, my family's been in California for a long time, uh, and, and my dad was a total acid head in San Francisco in the '60s. Hell yeah. Uh, so I just, yeah, I don't know. It was in a way, you know, and he died in 2007, uh, and I didn't really know him growing up. I, see. Uh, I tracked him down as an adult actually. And, uh, it, it, it just a few years later he died. Ah, that's, and, uh, that's, that's an interesting story. Uh, what, what happened that, what was there this desire to seek your dad out? Yeah. I saw the, I was trying to think of a good way to summarize it. Basically, uh, when my mom found out she was pregnant, she kind of, decided she didn't want him involved in my life, which kind of made sense. Well, he was a his... big acid head, I guess. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, it definitely might account for some of the scrambling in my DNA, but uh, the, uh, you know, he, she, so she split. He didn't even know he had a kid. Ah, I see. Uh, and then as I was reaching adulthood, I suddenly had the faculties and, and, and the, the like the mental equipment basically to to try and figure out where he went or where he was mm -hmm. uh and and also you know i was growing up with the world wide web so it as it became more 
sophisticated and more data was being dumped into it. I finally, it finally got to a point where I was able to uh, track him down using the internet, which <laughs> wouldn't have been possible when I was like 12. Yeah. You would have um, to do some like real gumshoe work. You'd have to like uh, right. yeah, tap yeah, a phone I, so line I, that, or something to, like that. I'd look people up with his last name in the phone book and, and randomly call hoping for a lead. Ah, like, what, was really what, was the, uh, what was that like when you first met him? Well, I only ever met him over the phone because he was living in a, a rural town in Nebraska. Oh. And, and at the time, I was actually living in South Carolina. So it was, it was just and I didn't have the resources to go, you know, hop on a plane yeah. or whatever. So it was just a few conversations. And it was clear that uh, the effects of his drug career were still, you know, <laughs> he, he, I, it, my understanding is he was he was clean when i found him but he he was already like you know on another planet in a way uh so um you know we had a couple awkward strange conversations over the phone and there was definitely on his part there was a lot of um there were a lot of tangents and stuff that mm -hmm. just came out of nowhere but it, I, I was also fascinated and intrigued uh even though i under i could i could kind of tell that we weren't ever going to form like a real relationship yeah uh i still i think there was still this yearning to try and like flesh out his identity and understand who he was and where he came from mm. and because he had been part of that universe of the summer of love in san francisco and all that stuff i it, it's something that it's i still you know i always take extra notice when i encounter things from that era yeah or, or people from that era for that matter especially since they're all reaching their eighties and it's, uh, you know, that's going to talk about waves of dying memories. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is the next generation that's going to cease to be a living memory soon. Yeah. All of the hippies they're all of the real hippies, you know, not, not this burning man, you know, wealthy tech hippie thing that we've got going on nowadays, but, uh, the real dropout, you know, turn on tune out, uh, uh, what, what was that guy's name? I can't even remember. Oh, Timothy Leary. Timothy Leary. I was going to call him yeah. Dennis Leary for this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, uh, Timothy Leary going, I'm an asshole, I'm an asshole, I'm an asshole. Uh, oh, God. <laughs> that, see, that's very interesting because I understand the desire to know your parents better. Be, uh, but for me, it comes from this place where when you grow up, you realize just how much of your personality is as a result of your parents' influence. You know, especially if you grow up with them when you're younger, you realize that, oh, all of my mannerisms and, you know, my interests can be reduced to my time at the time my mom showed me this one thing. I mean, my mom is the one who introduced me to Gan Wilson. She gave me Gan Wilson books oh. when I was a kid. Um, so but it's interesting when you have a parent who you didn't uh, know and who like, did you see like any similarities between you and him like that you just oh, yeah. picked up genetically and that it was very, like a big revelatory and, moment yes, for it definitely very That's similar personalities ah. um it, because he he has a lot of siblings and so i was able to you know who are able to have coherent conversations uh so in talking to them i learned a little bit more about him and the more i learned the more i felt like somehow he was still you know it, it, it the way that i can really get to know him is to just keep looking inward mm -hmm. because uh, we, we had so many of the same characteristics. Uh, even, even stuff that I mean, it's probably just a coincidence, but like, at the time that I tracked him down, I was all already also uh, really heavily into like uh, hot jazz from the 1920s yeah. and early thirties. And, uh, and 
when I did find him, I, I learned that he had a huge collection of old 78s from that era. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's so strange. It's not like there was like a lot of, pre- I wasn't, it wasn't peer pressure that led me to get into 1920s jazz. You know? <laughs> yeah. Everywhere. All the kids <laughs> at school were, you know, listening to, uh, or listening to Louis Armstrong and you, they were, they were yeah. smoking cigarettes. They were smoking jazz cigarettes and being like, Hey loser, <laughs> we're listening to hot jazz. You I mean, fucking usually asshole. Usually what would happen is, I'd have like a Bix Beiderbeck record or whatever, yeah. and I'd put it on for my friends. You've got to check this out. And it would be like, you know, the, the, yeah, the, these, the, these the garbly, yeah, the cylinders. And, hold, <laughs> yeah. and, and people just couldn't believe that I could sit through that. There's you know, low fidelity. Uh, anyway, um, well, there, I like the I love hot jazz, especially like those early, like really scratchy sounding recordings, because it was almost like it was in, you know, how there was the haze code in movies. So all like the pre code movies were sort of like filthy and fucked up. And then the haze code yeah. came in and changed it. But it was sort of like that with uh, jazz music, too, like because hot jazz, it originated in brothels. You know, it's yep. like there's, there's an more argument. innuendo. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And, like. Uh, and- there's, it's all acoustic recording. They didn't have electricity, so it's it's literally just the vibrations from the instruments hitting this like tiny disc. Yeah, that's you know bumping the needle into the wax. Yeah, it's uh, it's, it's 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 kind of bonkers to think that what what you're listening to is basically just the sound waves. Yeah, uh, it, it's it in a way that I don't know. Yeah, it's it it does it does feel there's something carnal about it. Yeah, we'll talk about living. Like, yeah, it's a it's a it's a much more alive piece of technology than say a piece of digital technology. There is like a much more of a physical aspect to it. Yeah. Um. But yeah. So like weird things like that uh, just made me. It does. It did. Yeah. It's uh. You're you're thinking about nature versus nurture, and that just yeah. it definitely it recalibrated my understanding of where the ratio might be (laughs) yeah it's a little more nature than you want to admit or or comfortable (laughs) with um well yeah i mean it's also because like your parents are inevitably so different from you but you will latch on to like details about them that sort of because you know your identity is forever a negotiation with yourself you know what am i you're always asking your that question throughout your life it's very difficult to answer so you're looking for something in your parents or you're looking for something external because uh, people externally, they seem to be these fixed entities or they seem to be these entities that, you know, don't have this same type of identity crisis, even though, you know, they do, but they seem like they have, you know, uh, their traits are more fixed. So I think, you right. know, that's why you sort of like look to your parents for examples of that. <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 this is this is also maybe this is related that I'm always trying to understand the behavior of other people and probably dissecting their actions way more than they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's like there's like I have this like conviction that there's there's something really deep and nuanced behind what they're doing, um, and it's probably I'm not it's not necessarily true. Yeah. Uh, if that might relate to the impulse to interview. Well, I think, no, I think that there is, you know, even in the simplest actions, there is something deep and nuanced about it because everyone is subject to these hidden motivations that they don't even know they have, you know? So, right. 
you know, anytime you like a decision to go to the store and buy groceries at a particular time is motivated by this impossibly complicated confluence of factors, uh, yeah. you know, uh, so yeah, yeah, I think that is, you know, I, I don't know if you like have self-diagnosed neurodivergence either because, you know, oh. everyone on the, everyone on the internet says, you know, I've never taken a test. And I think I'm autistic. I have, I don't like loud noises at parties. And I, you know, I, I definitely do that. I take like a, the, do I have autism test a lot <laughs> because, you know, I, I sort of, uh, concern part of it is like, uh, you know, maybe I want this, uh, medical intervention or something, but the other part of it is like, oh, this would finally explain what's wrong with me. Yeah. I, I'm kind of, well, Probably because I'm it's 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 constantly being framed to me as an accusation. Yeah. <laughs> I'm any diagnosis. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, my wife is always telling me that I have ADHD. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, you need to get tested. And I said, and I'll say, even if I do, there's nothing that can be done about it. I'm not going to take drugs. Not going to take Adderall. You're not going to take the <laughs> the the speed. Yeah, I, I, and that, some of that is maybe just personal experience. I had friends growing up who would, you know, be uh, given the wrong thing and then start doing crazy stuff. Oh yeah, and yeah. Uh, so I, I guess in in that in that way, I, I, you know, I, I'm at a point in my life where I, I can't afford to be experimenting with the right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you got a kid, you know, that shit's right yeah. out. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm, yeah, I just, I, you know, I, for a while I was seeing a therapist who was helping me just like kind of build the, oh, the, the habits that one needs when one struggles with certain kinds of things like remembering or focusing, or, mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, no proper diagnosis and maybe not a lot of time really thinking about it or worrying about it, but that might be part of the, that might be a symptom. Yeah, yeah, the the scrutinizing of other people's act because you know there is like I think just to want to be a cartoonist, you're already on the outside of the motivations of a lot of people. You know, you're already you know feel like you're on the window on the outside looking in. Like what normal people want? People that who are these people that are in these? You know, who becomes like a middle manager at Intel? You know, what what are these normal motivations that people have? How you know it's, how do they come by them? You know, so because I've really always felt yeah, I don't have it's, these normal motivations. But if I dissect someone's body language well enough, I can maybe determine <laughs> why they come to be the way they are. Yeah, uh, th I mean, it's it's something I didn't think about at all, really, until uh, uh, I suddenly was in situations with. So I've got two kids, so I'm around all of these parents, mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, it's really hard to relate to a lot of them because they have lifestyles that just seem so alien to me. Yeah, um, uh... and, and I and I and it, I do have the sense that the, the the lifestyle decisions they make it's a reflection of their values, um, and they're things that don't really matter to me necessarily. Uh, you know, and I, I, you know, new car or for that matter, even clean car, who cares? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so I'm intrigued by that stuff. Like, yeah. Or why like, to you, keep why, enough... why is, why do you need this car? Why do you need this new car? And why are you so meticulous about its condition? And it, it just seemed, it just seems so irrelevant to me, completely irrelevant. I don't know what purpose it serves. 
yeah it's a failure on my part no i think that there's some i think you're like you are like me and part part, maybe the reason why we share sort of simplistic cartoon styles or cartoon styles that can be done in sort of a a quick amount of time is maybe one is the adhd but uh two is that sense of impermanence you know that sense of you know this can all just be discarded as soon as like a like a buddhist mandala like the the point is you make it and then you blow the sand away at the end of it because you know everything is impermanent so why you know focus on these material things or these examples of material wealth because they're it's all gonna die eventually you know focus on something more important I think you're right. Uh, most of my work is on post-it notes, you know, so the panels yeah. are, I, I have the, the, I have the option of moving panels around if I need to or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's not good paper. <laughs> yeah. Obviously the, the, the glue holding those post-it notes to the paper is, you know, wearing off. So I've got boxes that are just like loose little scraps of paper that are all jumbled <laughs> together and there's no right or wrong to do it anymore. And yeah. Really. Uh, but yeah, this is because I, I guess, uh, I've, I've never, thought of this work as something that needs to be archived or that like that needs to be on a canvas or mounted or uh that people it almost seems like i mean i've always i guess my orientation has always been towards publication too so Mm -hmm. i think like what really matters is how it looks on the printed page Mm -hmm. but uh yeah the, the yeah the 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 things that people spend so much time doing that don't well i mean maybe all of it's meaningless <laughs> yeah i'm gonna say like why are you cleaning your car and they're gonna say well why are you drawing a picture yeah yeah uh, but you know one one i guess the other part the other side of it <laughs> beyond the like mandala thing or beyond the sense of impermanence is conversely a sense of permanence it's like I, I think there is always like an ego driven aspect to art, which is like, okay, so how do I live beyond myself? You know, if I get something published or something is in like a work of note, then I will live after I die, you know, because I'm, I'm frightened of death. I don't want to die. I like my ego. I like being an individual person with my own sets of thoughts and feelings. Right. So maybe there is some way to preserve myself. So that is an aspect of it too. That sort of selfish, a desire for a type of immortality yeah i agree with that yeah which is um, like why are you focusing on your car you're not going to become immortal from your car <laughs> <laughs> yeah even the, the newness of it suggests to me that you know in a few years it's going to be long gone yeah uh yeah i it's i don't know i mean some of this is t- tied up with uh I, I'm not, I'm not strictly speaking all that confident in the idea of free will. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that seems to be more controversial than I realized. No, I'm with you. Know. I'm like, I'm totally anti-free. I don't think free will really exists either. I mean, it does, it does like for, for we are creatures of free will, right? We, we understand our minds. Are, yeah. Yeah. We experience yeah, it, but it doesn't really exist in my view. No, we're a floppy disk. Yeah. So all we, of course, we can't possibly, you know, contain the processor. Uh, but yeah, it's it. So that even the, this idea of impermanence, uh, 
it, it does feel sometimes like uh, any moment in a way because that by its very impermanence is also permanent. But it's, you know, it's part of the infinite fabric. Yeah. It, it doesn't really, yeah, talking about it is something that will last or not last. It just yeah. almost seems irrelevant. I don't know. Well, if I were, I, I don't know if I've ever explained my metaphysical, uh, the like the bullshit metaphysics that I subscribe to, but um, I've always been a strong believer in the time is a flat circle thing, where it's just, uh, which some people consider the worst hell of all, the idea that we just repeat our lives and there's nothing we can do about it, um, and there will be no change or differentiation to the repetition. It's just the same thing over and over and over again. But... <laughs> Well, some people think that's like, oh, that's fatalistic and there's nothing I can do to change my future. Conversely, I became much more free will oriented after I I made this discovery for myself or I started telling myself this because it's like, uh, well, if I have to do this all over again, I might as well try and pursue something that is pleasurable to me or I might as well try and pursue something that is more fulfilling than, you know, I mean, that's sort of why I started doing cartoons is because I was like locked in these jobs that I wasn't getting a lot of, um, you know, spiritual uh, definition out of. I wasn't getting like a lot of uh, sense of purpose or sense of individuality out of them. So I figured like I'm going to have to do this all over again. I'm fated to do this all over again. So I need to do, I need to change my life very quickly and start doing something that is more spiritually fulfilling. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't know how I come by that fatalism or how do you come by your fatalism or what, what was like an experience that taught you that uh, we're just, it's, we're just a series of switches, you know? I guess, uh, it's just, it's the only, um, it's the only possible logical conclusion that I can come to every time I try and work it out. Every time I think about the materiality, even of thoughts mm -hmm. and, 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 and that the observable phenomenon do behave according to certain immutable laws. Um, and, and I think what, where that, where those, where the, that seeming immutability only, only really breaks down. Um, on a level at which we don't actually have complete data. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, as far as I can tell, uh, there, there isn't, there isn't any authentic randomness. Mm -hmm. And if there is no authentic, authentic random randomness, then there can't be any authentic free will, which mm -hmm. is predicated on, a, on, on choice. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I'm trying to remember, I, I, I've, I've been chewing on this for so long that it's kind of hard to remember the exact order of the evolution of this feeling. But uh, where I'm at with it now is, is, is almost like a, it's almost a transcendent understanding of it because uh, um, almost the idea that will and agency aren't things that, that are adequate as signifiers. Mm -hmm. That that you that you have math you can do a mathematical equation that points to infinity, mm -hmm. uh, but it, it, that will never encapsulate infinity. Um, and and so this yeah the will and agency are things that uh, they just they seem um, almost like uh, distractions. 
Yeah. Well, I think a better word for them or like a, a, a word that I would use to describe it is desire. You know, more than anything else, it is this this unconscious motivation that we have that comes from somewhere, but it is not as a result of, you know, some random occurrence in our brain or some like choice we have. Um, are you are you heartened at all by like the revelations of quantum physics that, you know, stuff can exist in two states at the same time until it is observed? That sort of points to the idea that our universe is less locked in in a certain pattern or or does that just, you know, make you even more uh, <laughs> entrenched in your idea that, you know, things are really fixed and there's nothing we can do about it? Yeah, I think um, I mean, this is this this is going to be it's laughable for me to even speculate having absolutely no training in physics or yeah. understanding these things on a very deep level. Um, but my sense is that uh, the, in the domain of quantum mechanics, what we're looking at is incomplete data. Mm. Um, and, and if, uh, if, if there is a situation where things are only fixed once they're observed, mm -hmm. um, that, that either means that there's something missing from from our measuring system, or there's uh, the, it could indicate uh, just a deeper and more dynamic um, immutable structure. Yeah, that, that we're, we're you know because it, it it is it's also kind of crazy for us to try and like um, <laughs> these we're just these gnats. Yeah. <laughs> trying to understand something so just impossibly vast. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, my hunch is that quantum mechanics is not the solution. <laughs> quantum <laughs> mechanics is not the solution. It created the A-bomb and it will create more. <laughs> <laughs> but the A-bomb does things that, you know, that don't defy our understanding of physics the physical yeah. law well it, it's also it, sorry keep going it doesn't break the law yeah uh, uh, if we can create if we can create create quantum bombs that just do random shit that we can't predict yeah then i might change my feelings about this but that it's a fun idea though the idea that you could drop a bomb on something and it turns into a turtle yeah, I, I I think that's a sort of the popularity of that movie, everything, everywhere, all at once, because it sort of no, posits, yeah. it's it's <laughs> all right. I got into trouble for saying it, it's kind of like it's a little trite. Uh, <laughs> people people didn't <laughs> like when I said it's like kind of trite, but I it's it's good. It's a it's an accomplished movie. It's decent, you know. Uh, I I it, I think it deserved its accolades, but it, it's a very sappy very uh, self-consciously sappy um like it, but, it has to be as a movie right yeah yeah it's, it's going have, to do well gotta have that ending gotta have that ending where people resolve and you know the primacy of the family is restored and you know <laughs> it, it's fine um but i i think it's also interesting with quantum mechanics is like okay so something exists in two states if it's unobserved but in order to comprehend it we have to observe it so it never actually exists in those two states in order to for us to like even jot it down or to take down data we will never actually experience the uh the point at which it's uh in those two stages of matter it just feels like a fancy repackaging of the tree falls thing yeah yeah in a way 
Yeah. Riddles and Cohen's. They had yeah. it right. <laughs> they had it. Well, that's... <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. That's the, maybe that's the part of it is that the, if, if, if you're using a, um, a metric that's fundamentally, um, illogical, mm-hmm. uh, it better expresses the perfect logic of the universe. Mm-hmm. Because you can't, and if something that's infinite can't be encapsulated, and so the only way you can express the logic of infinity is by doing something illogical. Yeah, I I also like the idea that in math there's like different concepts of infinity, like there are smaller versions of infinity. Uh, like uh, do you do you know about the Aleph null null set? I don't, but this sounds like Zeno's paradox. Uh, it's it's something that I only learned from Futurama because there was a joke in it about like a movie theater complex that the Aleph Null movie theater complex. But Aleph Null is the smallest version of infinity because it's um, every integer, every integer that you can think of is in the Aleph Null set. Um, <laughs> but you know there are larger versions of infinity which are like uh, encapsulate numbers or concepts that aren't integers or that uh, you know there, there's a, a a bigger more encapsulating version of it which I always found interesting that there are smaller and larger versions of infinity in math. Yeah. So I wonder if there are physical equivalents. Yeah. Um, but but when I say when I say infinity, I guess I'm thinking literally the literal inf- infinite nature of of substance itself mm-hmm. of being of existence yeah but of, you know yeah who, zooming who into an I? atom and you know <laughs> zooming into a quark and how you can never zoom in far enough there is no terminal point yeah 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 it's all tied together uh but yeah, I just feel trite saying this stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, this is, yeah, we're talking, speaking of LA acid heads in the 60s, you yeah, know, that's, that's what right. they were talking about. It's like the first, con- it's like the uh, in Animal House when uh, Tom Hulse and Donald that's, Sutherland yeah. are having the weed yeah. conversation. It's like, you're telling me there's a universe in this whole atom? Yeah, yeah it's the first conversation uh, you have on weed, yeah. Every time I talk about this stuff, I see Donald Sutherland in my ass. <laughs> yeah, and his nice ass, his great ass. He's got a great ass, Donald Sutherland. Um, yeah, I, I think moving back from like the cosmic, <laughs> the, the cosmic musings. Um, I want I want to talk about. So twenty five is like a very interesting age to pick this stuff up, you know, cause I started doing cartooning like seriously or started doing it every day only like a year ago, but I had been doing it on and off my whole life. And, you know, I had influences before then. Did you start, did you have artistic influences in cartooning before you started doing it? Or did you only start like looking at the history of it seriously after you started doing it? Yeah, I think it was concurrent. Like James Thurber. I, I don't think I knew really who that was. I wish I could ask myself at 25, who's James Thurber? I might have come up with some kind of answer, but I didn't really start looking at stuff like that until I was already determined to try and do it myself. Mm-hmm. But a, another one, and, and I don't know if the, the influence comes through, but I was really into Ronald Searle for a long time. Oh, hell, Searle fucking rules. Yeah, I, I get it. One thing about Searle is he just seems so uh, technically uh, accomplished, such a virtuoso that it's, at some point with him, 
and you know he had, he was he was pretty prolific too mm-hmm. and i would find to collect as much stuff by him as i could and at some point i just felt like i'm never going to be that good and 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 re- making having that realization was very liberating but i could stop trying to be as good as Searle. yeah i mean yeah this is brilliant unique you know uh i wonder how much of stedman was influenced by Searle, or were they contemporaries has to be because yes Searle's a a bit older than stedman i think stedman was born in 1936 Searle was born in uh, 1920 1919 1919 so there's almost a generation of difference but so, so definitely like the i know Searle's story is you know, he he had started cartooning before the war, mm-hmm. um, and you can see those early cartoons. The lines are very clean, everything's very moderate and balanced. Mm-hmm. And then he goes, he's in the Japanese, he's he's in the Japanese prisoner of war camp. Um, you know, sketching his you know compatriots starving to death with by using like shoe polish polish on like pieces of canvas or whatever. Yeah, and uh, then when he comes back. Uh, suddenly you've got those crazy tortured Searle lines. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And that's the, so this is, you know, from the late 40s onward. Uh, that's, I see Ralph Steadman as a, you know, schoolboy absorbing all of that. Mm-hmm. And he, he probably, I don't know, he's, he may have acknowledged it directly. Uh, but I, my feeling is if he denies it, he's lying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's funny how, like, all of these illustrators, you know, Ward f- fucked up their cartoons. Really, Like, the similar thing can be said about Otto Dix as well, where it's oh, like right. uh, a lot of his art or a lot of the fucked up quality of his art was as a direct result of World War One. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, uh, George Grosch. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All of these, yeah, scratchy post-war guys, uh, yeah, uh, getting real raw with it after they had seen... It's so funny. I've just come back from World War One. i I've seen immense horrors. Time to do cartoons. I'm going to do cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it worked, you know? It's like, yeah, for, for listeners, look up Searle. Look up Ronald Searle. He fucking is one of the greats. And, you know, a name that people don't know is like uh, as much as, say, I don't know, who's like a, a cartoonist that everyone can name from Al Hirschfield or someone like that. Oh, yeah. That's a, probably a good that's a good analogy because it's this, there, there's that same like richness and skill. Mm-hmm. but he's all clean and, you know, Broadway. And, yeah. And Hirschfield, there's not, there's not an evil quality. There's not like a, no. a dark fucked up quality to Hirschfield drawings. Yeah. Interestingly though, both of them lived incredibly long lives. Yeah. I mean, Hirschfeld, I think he lived to like 101. Oh yeah. Uh, and Searle was in his late nineties. Uh, so something, this is something I've noticed. It's not true for all cartoonists, but there are certain cartoonists who just seem to live forever. Jules Pfeiffer is still alive. He's in his 90s. That's insane. Like, That's and he's crazy. like going through this, like he's putting out like graphic novels now, which he had never done when he was young. He was like a newspaper strip artist for a long yeah. time. And then like in his, like as he was approaching 90, started putting out all these graphic novels. That fucking uh, rules. It's, it's, and it's, it's super inspiring. Um, uh, I love uh, Jules yeah, Pfeiffer. Like you yeah. can't tell yourself that you're over the hill if a 90-year-old is making graphic novels. <laughs> you have no excuse. Yeah. <laughs> I think Will Eisner made Contract with God at like 72 or something like that. And that oh, was wow. like yeah. a, 
maybe I'm maybe I'm exaggerating that. Um, but yeah, he was quite old when he did his first graphic novel. Of uh, course, William he was also busy. yeah, yeah, yeah. He he didn't start doing children's books until he was in his sixties, which is kind of mind blowing. You know, he was he was like eighty four when he wrote Shrek. <laughs> that's a, the 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 shrek book is much different than the movie it's very different, very different from the movie yes yeah. very different it, but uh, it's, it's it's funny that that's probably the you know the mark he made on the culture that's the largest mark he made on the culture in a way mm-hmm. but it's so unlike what he actually did <laughs> yeah well you know who who knows maybe we're gonna get uh I'm trying to think of like another illustrator who had uh, some sort of iconic character that will get turned into a pop culture reference machine eventually. Uh, Just wait until next year when Mickey Mouse becomes public domain. Oh, oh I'm so, I want to do so many fucking Mickey cartoons. I'm going to do so many <laughs> fucked up Mickey Mouse cartoons. I'm going to do uh, Mickey Mouse with his dick out. Going to do Mickey Mouse, you know, putting a curling iron on his dick and then it gets all curly. I'm going to do Jewish Mickey Mouse to piss off. <laughs> to piss off what's his, to piss off Walt Disney. <laughs> I actually I always liked that, you know, I always thought Fievel goes west. Okay, here's a Jewish mouse. Is this some sort of comment on Walt Disney in a way? <laughs> oh, they ripped off uh They ripped off Mouse. Uh, there was a big contention yeah. between Spiegelman and the and Don Bluth. Which is so funny. This guy does this horrifying mouse story about the Holocaust, and then a guy does like a very Disney-fied version of the mouse Holocaust. Yeah, yeah. I like that. The, for Disney, the the Disney version of the Holocaust is the pogroms. Yeah, <laughs> it's like Holocaust light. Yes, you know we don't have to be not 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 people don't know about this stuff. You know they don't really think about this stuff a lot. It's not fresh in our memory, so it's a little lighter for people to think about the pogroms, <laughs> to think about the mouse program pogroms. It was more picturesque because there were hussars involved, yes, cossacks or, or whatever. <laughs> uh, I guess there was also like there is like a weird american obsession not i guess obsession is the wrong word but at like fiddler on the roof was hugely popular there is something about these stories from the pale of settlement that are very um i, I don't know very intriguing to people yeah the the actor who played <gasps> Tevia just died yeah yeah chaim topol that's right uh yeah it's very curious isn't it uh it, but i guess you know in a way it's it's like the I don't it, for whatever reason it's kind of taken as like the most authentic expression of a certain kind of Jewishness. Yeah, I, I love the anecdote about the uh, mother with her son on the subway in Israel uh, in the early you know early years of the nation, uh, and she's speaking Yiddish to her son, and another passenger says, "This is Israel. You speak Hebrew here." And uh, she said, "I don't want my son to forget he's Jewish." <laughs> Take that. <laughs> Take that, Israelis. Uh, uh, I I recently learned, I think, from Twitter that Fiddler on the Roof was huge in Japan. Like, it's like one of the longest-running oh. musicals in Japan. Um, and instead of, like, uh, Mazel Tov before they drink, they say Kanpai, <laughs> which is great. Um, but It's hard not to think of it being, like, this weird sort of, like, um, plastic leather version of Fiddler on the roof with like lots of smiley faces and no, it's like, very like, tr- 
it's true to the original show because the reason why it was so popular in Japan is because it's like this is the experience of a Japanese family. There's this father who is geared towards tradition, but all of his children are subtly defying them and he has to, through love, learn to accept their decisions. You know, that's like oh, wow. a, it's like a story that apparently was very close to the Japanese familial identity, which is why it ran so long and people identified with it so much. Where was Russia in the Boxer Rebellion? <laughs> I don't know. Russo-Japanese relations going back a century now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's also very funny. It, you, you guys were fucked over by Russia? We were fucked by Russia, you know? <laughs> we get it. We get We know. Um, yeah, it's also like, yeah, it's also the reason why Irish people and Palestinians are so, you hate, you hate the British, we hate the British. Oh my God, we have so much in common. Yeah. Yeah, I like that sort of cross-cultural, when, when two cultures unexpectedly have more in common than you might think. Uh, I think well, we're coming, we're coming near to the end of our hour here, Jason. Uh, excellent, because my lunch hour is going to end in... 30 minutes ago. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for appearing on this podcast. I, I love your work. It's fucking great. It's so there's, there is a gentleness to it that I, that I love. And there's a sort oh. of like an observational gentleness that I think is, uh, you know, very, very hard to recreate. Um, and that's, that's I, good to hear. That's yeah. good to hear. Cause I always feel like I'm being too edgy. Really? Uh, there's some gentleness. Make this reassuring. No, uh, well, because it's like I'm so bad at being genuinely interested in other people. But it's really, <laughs> if you if you want one quality that will just improve your life vastly, it's being genuinely interested in other people. And I think that's what your cartoons really have is this like actual care about the lives of others, which is uh, really good. I feel. I feel genuine interest coming from you right now. So it's a <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's good. I'm, I'm glad I have honesty. If you can fake that you're in, <laughs> no, I, I am genuinely interested. Next stop, the New Yorker. Next stop, the New Yorker, baby. Remnick. I don't know why I like saying that name so much, but he's not even there anymore. Is it? I think he still is. Okay, well, actually, I haven't been following it very closely, but I mean, if, if he's still there, he's been there an awful long time now. Yeah. Yeah. But I actually have no idea. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Uh, Jason, do you have any plugs? I don't. Um, <laughs> Hell yeah! I'll just like, link to your Twitter and your your pages or anything hack like that. Cartoonist, because I think of myself as a hack. Yeah, the, we're all hacks. Freelancing background. Yeah. <laughs> we're all jerks. We're all jerks here. That's why you're on the Jerk Podcast, House of Decline. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Take care, Jason. Have a wonderful day. Yeah, you too. All right. Bye, everybody.